This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend The Analects of Confucius from the Great Courses series by Robert Andre Lafleur. Look, when you're talking about East Asian history, it's hard to get more foundational than Confucius, and beyond the historical importance, I really do find the Analects fascinating as a piece of philosophy. If you're looking for something to really shake up your perspective on what it means to be a good person, this is a great place to start. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 310, Freedom and People's Rights, part one. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you know that I love the Meiji period. It was my main field of study in graduate school, and of course, the single longest series we have ever done on this show was on the Meiji Restoration and the birth of the New Japan. But here's the thing about the Meiji period. It's very often told as a top-down history, the story of a small group of government leaders who, by hook or by crook, assemble a Western-style autocratic government as a tool to forcibly remake Japanese society. That story, of course, exists for a reason. It explains so much, from the rapidity with which Japan became a modern state, to the later battles in the 1920s over Japanese democracy, to the government structure of diffuse responsibility that led Japan to just up and stumble into World War II. But it's also not the full story by a long shot. In particular, it leaves out a group of average Japanese with a very different vision of the future of Japanese society, and that's the group whose story I want to tell, the Jiu Minken Undo, or Freedom and People's Rights Movement. Now, the traditional story of the freedom and people's rights movement relates to something that comes up a lot when we talk about the Meiji period. The problem, you see, is that you can't really be sure just what kind of knowledge a student will pick up when you send them abroad to study. The policy of many in the old Tokugawa government was Eastern ethics and Western science. In other words, students should go abroad to learn about engineering and architecture and all that good stuff, but their cultural ethos would remain solidly grounded in Japanese Confucianism. But of course, that's not how it works at all. The men who would come to lead the Meiji movement, men like Ito Hirabumi and Yamagata Aritomo, came away from their experiences of the West convinced that it didn't work like that. Westernization was a question of worldview, not just technology. This is why the Meiji leadership ultimately came down on the side of completely reworking Japan from the ground up. It's not that they necessarily wanted to break radically with the past, but that they felt it was necessary for Japan to survive as a state instead of as a colonized subordinate power. 
The story of the origin of the freedom and people's rights movement is traditionally explained in a similar way. It, too, was born out of a group of Japanese who either went abroad to study or learned about the West from books and became convinced of the impossibility of Eastern ethics and Western science and that Japan needed to be radically remade in a Western image. The difference really lies in the Western image they chose to rely on. Where the founders of the Meiji state were drawn most to Western autocracies like Imperial Germany, those who became the backbone of the freedom and people's rights movement were drawn to the governments and traditions of the great bastion of European liberty that was France. Where the more authoritarian-minded members of the Meiji government were drawn to the German model because of its strong centralized government, which they viewed as essential to trying to keep a modern state from falling apart at the seams, the freedom and people's rights movement latched onto the idea that democratic government was a fundamentally essential piece to the recipe for Western success. Their argument went as follows. The great scientific leaps of Europe were an outgrowth of the Enlightenment, that period of intellectual emphasis on the scientific process and the power of the rational mind to understand the world. The first government to adopt Enlightenment values as its own was that of revolutionary France. Remember, this is the 1800s, nobody's really impressed by the USA at this point, and besides, the American Revolution was pretty moderate compared to the French one. So, the thinking went that truly embracing a Western worldview meant embracing the ideas of the Enlightenment, the most Enlightenment-style government out there was French-style republicanism, and it emphasized those old ideas of liberty, equality, and brotherhood. This is the traditional explanation for where the freedom and people's rights movement came from. This is also the way in which its opponents traditionally smeared it. They argued that these foreign notions of liberty and equality were simply not in keeping with Japanese custom. Japanese history was one of top-down autocracy and dictatorship. Perhaps one day Japan would be ready for such things, but not yet. Which, it's a bit rich to critique others for importing foreign ideas when you yourself are doing just that. The whole Meiji government existed in this weird flux state of simultaneously trying to project an image as a westernizer while grounding itself in continuity with the past, for example, relying on the image and prestige of the emperor. That's politics, I guess. It doesn't really have to make sense if you can get people to believe in it. Anyway, this critique of the freedom and people's rights movement, that it's somehow a foreign movement of foreign ideas, well, it's just not true to say that Japan's history is only one of autocracy and dictatorship, or that the freedom and people's rights movement involved importing foreign notions with no grounding in Japanese history. In fact, I would argue that the prehistory of this movement begins long before the movement itself. While the terminology of the movement was inspired by the Enlightenment, the idea that people should have a voice in their government actually does have a long root in Japanese history. We've talked before about movements on this podcast that could be labeled as proto-democratic. When we talked about the peasant uprisings in Aizu Domain in 1868, remember, each individual collection of villages essentially set up a democratic council complete with things like voting structures. Nor was that structure unique to Aizu. Most peasant rebellions of the time adopted something similar to that to form their leadership. During the Tokugawa period, 
the democratic devolution of leadership among peasants was not only a way to convince people to join up because their voices felt heard, it was also a way to protect yourself. After all, you may remember from those episodes on peasant rebellions that Tokugawa-era samurai had something of a history of executing the leaders of these rebellions, but they can't kill everybody, so if there's no clear leader, then you're safe. Going further back, we've also talked about the Iki of the Sengoku Civil Wars. These were leagues of peasants who, fearing the chaos of the wars, set up organizations of mutual defense, often with the aid of the great Buddhist institutions, wealthy temples that held land themselves, many of which also had small standing armies. These Iki could vary pretty widely in character. Some of them, especially those affiliated with the Jodo Shinshu True Pure Land Buddhist sect, were pretty overtly religious. Others were more traditionally political. Many Iki, though, included elements that I think any scholar of early modern democracy would recognize. This included things like deliberative assemblies composed of wealthy non-samurai who would get together and vote on issues, something that looks for all the world like the parliaments we associate with late medieval and early modern Europe. The most famous of these Iki ruled over Yamashiro province in central Japan. At least one scholar of the period, Mira Hiroyuki, referred to it as, quote, the People's Parliament of Warring States Japan, unquote. But Yamashiro is far from an isolated case, though it's a really interesting one and something that we maybe can dive into at a later date. Similar Iki ruled over different places, like Iga province, for example. I do want to be careful throwing around adjectives like proto-democracy to describe a concept, because the danger of historical anachronism, of projecting my own values onto the past, is very high. But it is worth noting that this is very similar to the pattern of democratic transformation that Europe followed. Non-nobles get together in voting bodies to handle local business, and then use those voting bodies to challenge the authority of the nobility, the traditional nobility in Europe, the samurai in Japan. Really, the biggest difference is that in Europe, those voting bodies eventually won out and defeated the nobility and the monarchy supporting them. In Japan, they were crushed militarily by the power of the great samurai warlords, though that process took close to a century to complete. Anyway, all of this is to say that the first charge you often see leveled at the freedom and people's rights movement, that it was a movement of westernizers divorced from Japanese context, is unfair. With that in mind, let's talk about the actual context for the rise of the movement, the 1870s. In some ways, this is a period of upheaval to match that of the 1860s. From 1866 to 1869, there was a short civil war between the opponents of the Tokugawa shoguns and the Tokugawa government, the Bakufu. That war ended in the Tokugawa being defeated. However, as with all wars, the question was then inevitably raised, what do we do now? The various sides which had opposed the Tokugawa had come together out of shared hatred for the shogun's government, but that's not really a stable basis for any long-term government, particularly since there wasn't actually an established government anymore. So a new structure had to be set up, and some decisions had to be made about who was going to be in charge of it. One of those who was in the mix during this tumultuous time was a guy by the name of Itagaki Taisuke. 
Now, Itagaki is very closely associated with the freedom and people's rights movement, and I'm going to go through his biography a bit here, but he's not really the founder of the movement in the traditional sense. I don't really think you can say the freedom and people's rights movement had a founder in any sense. But his role is important, and it's worth going over. Itagaki Taisuke was born in what was then Tosa Domain on the island of Shikoku in 1837. He was relatively young during the Meiji Restoration. He was 31 years old when the Tokugawa Shogunate fell. During that war, he was one of the senior commanders for the armies of Tosa Domain, and his skill on the battlefield earned him a position of pride in the Tosa leadership. Tosa Domain was one of the domains to join the alliance against the Tokugawa shoguns, but it was a bit of a latecomer to the anti-Tokugawa cause. Its reigning daimyo family, the Yamauchi, were staunchly pro-Tokugawa, even as many of their subordinates were overwhelmingly opposed to the Tokugawa. In addition, Tosa was quite a bit poorer than the other anti-Tokugawa domains. Its income was 250,000 koku, which was not insubstantial, but didn't really stack up well compared to the 700,000 or so pulled in by, say, Satsuma Domain. Choshu Domain, the other major leader of the anti-Tokugawa alliance, had a comparable official ranking for its gross economic output, but had managed to systemically cheat the official land surveys and actually had a productivity fairly close to that of Satsuma. These factors, that Tosa was a latecomer to the cause, and that it was quite a bit less wealthy than its fellow anti-Tokugawa domains, meant that, over time, it was sidelined in favor of Satsuma and Choshu. Itagaki Taisuke, as one of the men chosen by Tosa Domain to go represent that domain's interest in the government, was sidelined as well. In the end, Itagaki would not last long during his stint in government. He would serve as one of the Sangi'in, the councillors of state, but would only hold that position for four years before leaving government in 1873. Ostensibly, he left because of one of the crises of the early Meiji government, the threat of war with Korea. We've talked a bit about this before. In essence, the king of Korea refused to deal with Japanese diplomats from the new Meiji government because they refused to approach diplomacy with Korea in the traditional fashion, and instead attempted to impose Western-style diplomacy on Korea. The Koreans rejected this approach and refused to meet Japanese diplomats, and as a result, there were some in the Japanese government who pressed for war. They were overruled, and many resigned from government in protest. Itagaki was nominally among those who made that choice. However, Itagaki's resignation was not just about taking a militarist stance toward Korea. He was also frustrated generally at being repeatedly sidelined in the government because he was from Tosa. The leaders of Satsuma and Choshu had come to dominate the new government. Itagaki and many of his colleagues from Tosa and the other smaller domains were frustrated at their treatment as a result. However, Itagaki's departure from the actual corridors of power didn't take him out of politics for very long. He resurfaced the very next year, establishing Japan's very first political party, the Aikoku Koto, or Public Patriotic Party. The name was an attempt to avoid projecting the wrong kind of image. This was not some group of radical subversives. They were patriots, 
and they met in public, not behind closed doors, where they could be conspiring against the state. The 1870s were still an unstable time politically, samurai discontent against the new government and changes to the social order was growing, the government had a tendency to respond by labeling any group with political aspirations, no matter how tame, as potentially subversive. Itagaki founded the Public Patriotic Party alongside a man he knew well, Goto Shojiro. Goto was also from Tosa Domain and had been, in essence, its prime minister. He had been the chief advisor to the old Yamauchi clan lords of Tosa, and that job had in turn got him a promotion to the new Meiji government. However, like Itagaki, he had found that his background being from the wrong domain, in other words, not from Satsuma or Choshu, meant that he would be politically sidelined, and so he too retired from government. Alongside these two Tosa samurai were two other samurai from Saga domain, off in Kyushu around modern Nagasaki. Saga, too, had been a member of the anti-Tokugawa alliance. Its samurai, too, found themselves unable to climb high in government for all the reasons that samurai from Tosa had that same problem. The two Saga domain samurai were Eto Shimpei and Soejima Taneomi. Their resumes are going to sound like a skipping record at this point. Military leaders from the domain fought against the Tokugawa, earned a spot in the government, found they had limited access to political authority. Look, you heard this before like two minutes ago. Anyway, these four samurai together drafted a set of principles for their new public patriotic party. This document started with the premise that the recent debates over war with Korea proved the need for a system of representative government. Decisions were being made behind closed doors with no accountability or input from anyone outside of a small clique of leaders from Satsuma and Choshu. The four samurai noted that way back in 1868, the five-point charter oath issued by the imperial government upon its founding had included as its very first line, deliberative assemblies shall be widely established and all matters decided by open discussion. Yet six years had now passed. No such assemblies were in sight. The document continues, quote, The decrees of the government appear in the morning and are changed in the evening. The administration is conducted in an arbitrary manner. Rewards and punishments are prompted by partiality. The channel by which the people should communicate with the government is blocked up and they cannot state their grievances. The people whose duty it is to pay taxes to the government possess the right of sharing in their government's affairs and of approving or condemning its actions. This is a principle universally acknowledged, and it is not necessary to waste words discussing it. The text then continues, quote, How is the government to be made strong? It is by the people of the empire becoming of one mind. The establishment of a council chamber chosen by the people will create a community of feeling between the government and the people, and they will mutually unite into one body. Then and only then will the country become strong. By establishing such a council chamber, public discussion in the empire will be established. The spirit of the empire will be roused to activity. The affection between governor and governed will be greater. Sovereign and subject will be brought to love each other. Our imperial country will be maintained and its destiny developed, and prosperity and peace will be assured to all. 
Now, there's really a lot going on here, clearly. Particularly early on in the text, you can see a real frustration among its authors at the arbitrary way the government made decisions and at their inability to access the levers of power. However, there's also an appeal here to the idea of human rights, and I love that language of the right of the people to share in government being a principle universally acknowledged, and it is not necessary to waste words discussing it. There was also a preemptive defense here against the charge that the movement was subversive or anti-government. Again, the early Meiji government had a real tendency to label any political group as subversive, no matter how mild its politics were. But the members of the Public Patriotic Party insisted that they were not about dividing people factionally against the government. In fact, only through representative government could the people and the state fully unite. Interestingly, the document really is a combination of Confucian ideas about reciprocal government with Western notions of representative democracy and individual freedom, which is really intriguing because of these four guys, only Soejima Taniomi had actually been to the West, and in that case it was just Russia, which at this point is a czarist autocracy, not a liberal democracy. Yet even without actually going to the West, these four men had been exposed enough to the ideas of Western representative democracy to actually internalize them a bit, to take them in and make them their own. Now, unfortunately, the actual fate of the Public Patriotic Party was, well, pretty dismal. Very shortly after signing on to the manifesto of the party, one of its founders, Eto Shimpei, returned to his home domain in Saga. There, he ended up joining other local samurai in a rebellion against the government. That rebellion began with a raid on a government bank on the 16th of February, 1864. It was over before the month was out. Despite a large number of Saga domain samurai flocking to the cause, well, the domain's army had never been huge, and the leadership of the Tokyo government was determined to make an example of these rebels to discourage future anti-government uprisings. One of Eto's close companions in leading the rebellion, by the name of Shima Yoshitake, publicly announced his intention to defend Saga Castle to the death against the government, and then promptly abandoned it in the middle of the night, fled into the countryside, and was eventually caught. Eto himself abandoned the rebellion on February 22nd, ostensibly because it was doomed and he wanted to end the fighting without further bloodshed. He attempted to make his way to other samurai with a dislike for the politics of the existing government, including the famous Saigo Takamori, but they refused to help him. Eto then declared his intention to take a boat to Tokyo and publicly commit seppuku, ritual suicide, in protest against the state. He was arrested before he even made it out of the docks. Despite an undercurrent of support for Eto among some in government who felt his grievances were not illegitimate, the decision was ultimately made to make an example of these two leaders of rebellion. Eto Shimpei and his compatriot Shima Yoshitake were put in front of a military tribunal, found guilty of treason, and summarily beheaded, a punishment traditionally associated with lowly criminals. Itagaki, Goto, and Soejima, fearing that they too would come under suspicion after all they'd just signed a document criticizing the government right next to the name of a guy who had just been beheaded by that government, promptly decided to disband the Public Patriotic Party. 
The remaining three founders took very different trajectories from this point forward. Soejima decided to get out of Dodge for a bit, and took a job as a consultant for the government of Imperial China. Goto was convinced to come back to the government. In 1875, the Meiji leadership offered an olive branch to those who had left out of frustration at its clannishness. At a conference in Osaka, the government met with leaders like Goto and Itagaki and offered them a compromise. There would be a limited deliberative assembly, called the Genroin, the Council of Elders, so-called because this was how the term Senate was translated into Japanese, and an independent court system to allow for some form of representation and a somewhat independent judiciary. Goto was convinced by this compromise and signed back on to the government. Itagaki was also convinced for a time, but he quickly left the government once again, noting that the Genroin were all government appointees, they were not elected, and thus glorified yes-men. To be fair, Itagaki was, in fact, right. Not only were the Genroin appointed by the existing government and thus not elected, the government was not going to listen to them when the advice of the Genroin contradicted their own desires. Early on in its existence, the Genroin was tasked with drafting a potential constitution for Japan. When that draft was completed after two years, it was rejected outright with no attempt at modification by the government. The reason for its rejection, it divided authority between the emperor and an elected legislature, rather than placing the emperor clearly at the top of the political hierarchy. It also had no provisions for imperial ordinances that could go into effect without requiring approval by the representative body. In other words, it was an actually democratic constitution, and therefore unacceptable. Instead of participating in this farce of the Genroin, Itagaki left politics once again and returned to his native Tosa domain. There he engaged in some political organizing, as well as the promotion of westernization, emphasizing the positive position of Japan as a follower country, its position as a late industrializer meaning that it was in a unique position of being able to copy the work of Western powers, to take what worked from them and reject what didn't, and so operate at a faster pace than the Western powers had. We're going to leave Itagaki here for a moment because he's going to step off the stage for a bit, and because there are a few other stories we should consider as a part of the founding of the Freedom and People's Rights Movement. I should be upfront, I'm not going to cover every political figure who was involved in this movement because there are a lot of them. After all, the Freedom and People's Rights Movement is... A movement, it's not a political party. There was no organizational structure, just a group of people who broadly shared some belief in the two key concepts of the movement, freedom and people's rights. Anyway, the next person I want to introduce is Nakaya Chomin. This is actually a pen name, the real name is Nakaya Tokusuke, but nobody ever calls him that, and so neither will I. Nakaya Chomin was from a low-ranking samurai family from, where else, but Tosa Domain, just like Itagaki and Goto. Early in his career, he was dispatched to Edo to learn foreign language. French was one of these, and at the time of the Meiji Restoration, he had a job at the French embassy as a translator to the French ambassador. That work in turn meant that when the Tokugawa government collapsed, the new Meiji government was looking around for people to send abroad and learn about the West, 
and Nakai Chomin, since he spoke French, seemed like a natural candidate to go to France. Nakai would live in France until 1875, and it was there he would encounter the ideas of a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Now, Rousseau is one of the most famous philosophers of the European Enlightenment. Like a lot of philosophers of that time, he wrote, well, a lot, but for our purposes, the most important thing Rousseau did was to put forward a vision of government in a republic that would prove very influential during the French Revolution. In particular, Rousseau's view of government was based heavily on the idea of the general will, that the government should reflect the broad will of the people by means of an elected assembly. Rousseau's view of republican government really clicked for Nakaya Chomin. He was the first to translate Rousseau's The Social Contract, one of his key works on government, into Japanese, and came back to Japan full of conviction that Rousseau was the guide to the future of the country. Once Nakaya Chomin came back to Japan, he made the acquaintance of another former exchange student and a very valuable friend, Sayonji Kinmochi. Sayonji has come up before on this podcast as well, which, more than anything, is a testament to the length of his career. He was the head Japanese negotiator at the peace talks after World War I. Prior to his death in 1940, he worked very hard to keep Japan out of an alliance with Nazi Germany. At this point in his career, though, he was still a young man, but a young man of noble lineage. He was from the Kuge, the old courtly aristocracy with roots more than a thousand years in the past. Sionji's family pedigree gave him a lot of influence at court. He was well-liked among the early Meiji government leaders. Among the Kuge, he was one of very few who actually took up arms during the war against the Tokugawa, and had served briefly in the military. Because of both that pedigree and his own popularity, Sionji was chosen to go abroad and learn directly about the West to be groomed as a potential leader. However, Sionji's time in the West, especially Paris, had a somewhat different effect from the one I think was intended. Sionji left for Paris as a fairly conservative man politically, devoted to the idea that the emperor should be supreme in politics. He came back having embraced the ideas of Enlightenment democracy. By the time he met Nakaya Chomin, Sionji was already well on his way to establishing the kind of institutions he felt the new Japan was going to need. Among others, he'd already helped set up Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto, and the predecessor of Meiji University in Tokyo. Nakaya and Sionji hit it off quickly thanks to their shared idealization of the French government. They would eventually go on to start a newspaper together in 1881, the Eastern Free Press, or Toyo Jiu Shimbun. That press was not long for this world. Its first issue came out on March 18th, the last one on April 30th. It was then shut down for the crime of lese majeste, insulting the emperor by calling for his powers to be limited and subordinate to an elected representative body, which legally was an attack on the emperor and therefore a crime. Nakaya and Sionji would bounce back and found a new paper, the Jiu Shimbun or Free Press. It was a bit more restrained in tone and so dodged the censor and would eventually become one of the major vehicles 
by which the ideas of the freedom and people's rights movement were spread around Japan. Before we call it a day, there's one more person I want to spotlight today because of his importance to our narrative. His name is Okuma Shigenobu, and he will also become a figure of the freedom and people's rights movement. Okuma was a samurai born in Saga Domain. Just like Eto Shinpei, he had served in the alliance against the Tokugawa, but became frustrated with the increasing dominance of figures from Satsuma and Choshu. You've heard this tale before. Unlike literally everyone else we've talked about this week, though, Okuma knew when to keep his mouth shut, and thus stayed in government, working a series of diplomatic and economic jobs through the 1870s. Okuma did not spend much time overseas, but he worked closely with foreigners, especially the British, and he became deeply enamored with British constitutional monarchism. He believed it split the middle ground between authoritarianism and French-style Republican government, while still guaranteeing individual rights. Unfortunately, Okuma's time in government was numbered because of his politics as well as his outsider status, and his number came due in 1881. The crisis began when Prince Arisugawa, a distant relative of the emperor, asked members of the government to prepare drafts of a potential constitution. Drafts were supposed to be private so that the emperor could consider them without interference. The details, naturally, leaked immediately. Okuma's draft was far more liberal than literally every other one submitted. It curtailed the emperor's power in favor of an elected assembly with a strong prime minister, and Okuma proposed the system be implemented immediately, rather than waiting a few years which would give the governing clique of Satsuma Choshu time to organize its own political party. The draft created a scandal. In its wake, Okuma was accused of insulting the imperial throne and forced to leave his job. So what we have here are several different men on different trajectories. Itagaki Taisuke, Goto Shinpei, Nakai Chomin, Okuma Shigenobu, and many, many others. Their stories all share a few common elements. A background from one of the less powerful domains, an attraction to some form of Western-style liberalism. Next week we'll talk about how some of these men came together to build new political parties, how those parties rode the coattails of a movement that was already beginning to build steam outside the rarefied halls of the elite. But for now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Alberto Banagas, as well as new patrons Chad, Trevor McVitie, and Hank Van Vliet for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two.